Welcome to ACE Audio, the podcast that supports, educates, informs, and motivates manual therapists around the world. Hello everyone, Sean and Bo here back again to have a chat with you today about trigger points. Bo, this is a big one. We've been holding on to one. Yeah, it's a... It's one of those areas that we could just, you could talk about for days. Um, and then by the time you finish talking, there'll be some new research to refute everything you've just said. Um, it's, it's a funny one too, because there's still a lot of people out there that are disputing that trigger points even exist. They're saying that if you can't measure it, then it's, uh, it, it doesn't exist. But we do know that you can measure it. So we'll talk about that. Um, the pathophysiology is super confusing and, and complex. Um, and then how we treat it, there's multiple layers of, of, of that and then understanding around how that all works as well. So it's a big topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, like everything that we do, it's far more complex than, than we um, initially think. There's so many factors that can contribute to the formation of trigger points, the influence of pain. Um, so, yeah, we've, I think we really need to not only look at the trigger point but outside the trigger point. Um, as far as central mechanisms and, and environmental factors as well. Yeah, and I think the old school thinking around trigger points was that it's just a tiny little cramp in a muscle and it's it's as a result of stress on the body. It's a very external focus. It's very much, you know, you've worked too hard, the muscle's tightened up, you've got a local spasm, just a little cramp. Uh, if you stretch that out or squash it or stab it with a needle or whatever other technique you might like to use, then that cramp goes away. But there's there's a lot more to it than that, right? There's There's the... We've got to consider multiple systems in this. Yeah. Well, what about the patients that are uninjured or they don't do physical activity, so they're not causing any damage to that myofascial unit, mm. yet they still present with trigger points and myofascial pain? Mm. And satellite trigger points you know, that happen in peripheral areas that aren't necessarily related to any load or other factors that might be applied to the location of the primary trigger point. So there's, yeah, at that, that sort of, adds, I think, complication to the whole story because we not only do we have different theories about how trigger points um, develop, but there's also different categories of trigger points. And then one theory doesn't necessarily work across all those categories. So it's, it's a tricky one. Definitely. And another interesting thing is where, you know, I guess the understanding is that it's, it's, a, it's a tight muscle that forms a trigger point. Well, if we look down at more of that microscopic level, there's, there could be a taut band or a short muscle fibre within a long muscle. Mm. You look at your typical upper trapezius trigger points, they're not with their shoulders up around their ears. They've typically got these long, depressed, loaded muscles so as a whole, that muscle is in a lengthened position, yet we can still find those ischemic taut bands, those exquisite palpable nodules, if we go by the definition, um, within that muscle. So it can be that there's that restriction of that muscle fibre, but then other fibres are, are at length around it. You're right. And it's often we see trigger points present in fatigued muscles, you know, muscles that aren't holding even an appropriate amount of tone. Um, and that can be as a result of, you know, poor health of that tissue potentially, as opposed to an external load that's put on it. Absolutely. And weakened muscle, you know, uh, that's another one where we think well, there's pain in it. That the first response is to stretch it, make it longer. But 
it's often need to get that health in the tissue through improving blood supply and strength, give that tissue more resilience to be able to withstand the forces or demands that's, that's placed on it. Um, so it's some, it's may seem a little bit counterintuitive, um, but, you know, that's where we can really implement manual therapy techniques to take away some of that, that pain, um, to allow them to get stronger and, and, and prevent that trigger point from coming back because they're not just appearing out of the blue for absolutely no reason. There's, we've got to identify what's, why is that trigger point there and, and what can we do to, to stop it from coming back? That's a really good point. I think we often look at things through, um, you know, through blinkers. You know, someone comes in with trigger point pain in their rhomboids, for example, and we go, right, well, obviously those muscles are tight because we been hunched over the, the desk all day. So we go and apply lengthening techniques, stretching techniques, things that would soften and lengthen tissue, ideally. Um, and then as a result, you have more, um, uh, there's more more length applied to that muscle. And where in actual fact, you're, you might be right, they might need a greater degree of strength. They might need to increase tone in those muscles. But if the person presents to us with trigger points there and we ignore those and go straight straight to strength protocols, then they won't be compliant because it will be painful. They won't get the results they want because they won't do the work they need to do. And so really, you know, that's kind of the key thing with trigger points is they hurt. If yeah. a person comes in with a trigger point, regardless of where it is, what what the state of the tissue around it is, we need to address that point of pain because not only will it improve, improve compliance, but pain itself can be a major um, issue when it comes to chronic presentations. If we don't address the pain in the short term, it can very easily become a chronic presentation that goes beyond the trigger point, beyond the tissue into more of a central type problem. And we've had discussions previously with Jay Shah, Dr. Jay Shah about this, and he's a big advocate for address the pain fast, address the pain early, do it as quickly as you can in whatever way you can, and then address the tissue problem um, because you don't want it to become a, a central sensitization or some kind of ongoing chronic presentation that you can't easily impact. Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing. It can be caused by central mechanisms or it can be caused by peripheral mechanisms. And that's where this, this loop can continue. So I guess if we, we had a look at what's happening in the periphery or why that particular point is, is painful. So if we've got a change at that cellular level, so we've got that, that contracture of the sarcomeres, so stuck in that shortened um, environment, well, then we start to have compression of lo local blood vessels, local nerves, which then can send more of these danger signals back to the central nervous system. But there's also various chemicals that are released. So that inflammatory soup, we can have neurogenic inflammation. So inflammation that sort of is released from the nerves, that's substance P, calcitonin gene-related peptide. Now these are sensitizing chemicals which means that it's much easier now for a message to be sent back to the, to the spinal cord. So I think it's interesting when we start to look at it that way, there's a, a range of other um, sensitizing neurotransmitters. Um, but even when we look at muscle contraction, now acetylcholine is, is, a, is a neurotransmitter that we will all be well aware of as far as um, uh, muscle contraction. But there's certain sensitizing chemicals that um, can inhibit um, calcitonin, sorry, 
can inhibit, inhibit if I can talk properly, um, acetylcholine esterase. Now, acetylcholine esterase actually breaks down acetylcholine. So if we've got more neurogenic inflammation, which means we've got more calcitonin gene-related peptide, that can inhibit acetylcholine esterase. Now, that means that we're going to have more acetylcholine in that environment. So that can create this muscle contracture, a sustained muscle contracture. So you can see how that might become more of a, a chronic problem. If we've got more neurogenic inflammation, we've got this acetylcholine that's not being broken down. Um, so we've got this uh, sustained muscle contracture. We also get that lowering of the threshold to create an action potential. So to create that uh, allow that muscle, sorry, the nerve fibers to send a message back to the central nervous system. That happens much easier. And one of these um, chemicals is norepinephrine. Now that can open up more channels to allow more sodium to get into that cell. Norepinephrine is a stress chemical as well. So you think of those people that are highly stressed, um, they're in that fight or flight sort of environment all the time. Well, Increased levels of norepinephrine is allowing more sodium to go into that neuron to initiate that action potential. All right, so now we've got a, an environment where we've got these inflammatory chemicals, which is now easier to send a message to the central nervous system. There's an inhibition of um, chemicals that break down acetylcholine. So this sort of pain spasm can really continue which is frustrating. It's painful. There's an emotional response. So it can be quite a nasty environment with, with myofascial pain. Um, not only that, when we look at that as just one trigger point, um, the more prolonged this is, you start to get this expansion of the receptive field. So now there's widespread pain that starts to sort of spread out into you get this axonal branching onto other neurons. So now that, that noxious input is detected from a larger area, which is all then sent back to the central nervous system. Yeah, it's a, it, that's what people come in and say, my back hurts, where? Oh, just my whole back. And then you dive in there with your thumb and you go, how's that? And they go, oh, that's the center of it. That's the, that's the spot. Yeah, and then you've got this, this um, axonal overflow it goes out and you've got pain in an area as opposed to a locus. And this is the, the danger of not treating exquisite locus pain, you know, local pain in the early days, in the early stages, because you get this overflow effect and it, it becomes a cascade of problems that sort of like set of dominoes. Definitely. So you, and look at that in an unhealthy tissue environment of, okay, well, I've got sore upper trapezius and then that gets worse. You're not doing anything about it. You're not, exercising you're not moving you're not strengthening it whatever it may be um, that spreads but not only in the periphery because we're getting this constant bombardment back to the the dorsal horn it can sensitize the dorsal horn so you got your peripheral nociceptor right as that um, goes into the dorsal horn, it then synapses. So you got your primary or your first order neuron, then it synapses with a second order neuron, which then goes up to the thalamus and synapses with a third order neuron. So if we 
have this peripheral sensitization. So that's the nociceptors, let's say, as you can see in my forearm, I'll use upper trapezius again. Um, that area can be sensitized, um, but so can that the, the spinal level where that, that nerve is actually going into. So the, that's where it becomes a central problem. And then you can also get that overflow, the segmental overflow. So any area that's innervated by that, that particular nerve root, whether that be muscle, joint, connective tissue, ligament, um, that can all be affected. But then if it goes up or down to the, the next segment, then any tissue that's innervated by that level can be affected. So you can see how pain in general could start as a peripheral input um, that sensitizes the central nervous system. So then even though that we've taken away that peripheral driver, it can be now a central problem, which can then spread up and down, um, you know, and then it can be quite challenging uh, because, and frustrating because people may go for imaging or no one can find out what's wrong with me. Um, they, they looked at my scan or scan said there was nothing wrong with me, but it's painful. Um, so we've got to think, well, there's more of a central problem going on here and that, that's where the, the complexity and that the challenge really comes into it. It's also really useful to understand that mechanism. So we understand that there's a peripheral uh, isolated problem initially, potentially isolated. It then can become a central issue, which then has overflow out back into the periphery and up into the brain and, and through the spinal cord. There was an interesting study. Remember that discussion we had with John, Dr. John Serbley about the study he did around pain pressure threshold testing of trigger points. And he found that using this model, this model of understanding that if he was to treat a trigger point in a muscle uh, and there was trigger points in other muscles that are supplied by the same nerve, uh, by the same spinal segment, that when he treated that one trigger point, other trigger points, pain pressure threshold would diminish also. So he treated, I think in his study, he talked about a, a trigger point in a supraspinatus, which the nerve that feeds that also feeds the infraspinatus. He did pain pressure threshold testing, you apply a device and a certain rating about how much force you have to apply to the trigger point to elicit pain. So he treated only the supraspinatus, but then after the treatment, its pain had reduced, but also the infraspinatus trigger point had also reduced. And this is consistent across different segments. And so that tells us that a trigger point is not isolated. It's not, a, it's not an island in your tissue. It's not sitting there by itself. It's definitely connected by the nervous system. And then if we understand that mechanism, we can apply that. You know, if someone comes in with trigger points all through one area of the body and all through another area, and we know that they're supplied by the same air, by the same um, nerve root, well, then maybe we don't have the time to, to address all of them, but we can address one and have an overflow effect into the other. And so this is why understanding um, pathophysiology, mechanisms with manual therapy, and then combining those two things, you can start to apply your clinical reasoning over the top of that, save yourself time, save yourself um, excessive intervention with a patient, uh, and potentially, potentially say that with the inverted commas, um, get it, get a really good beneficial effect for that person. Yeah, absolutely, and I think even looking at what we do with our, our treatment techniques, whatever that may be, if it's a deep ischemic pressure, dry needling, just a general massage, whatever it may be, um, we looked at 
the what's happening at that that cellular level at the sarcomere the contracture the biochemical milieu or the, the the inflammatory soup around that area which can be a noxious environment so you get a decrease in ph um, so we've got these cellular changes which affect the central nervous system um, unhealthy tissue because we're getting loss of oxygen a loss of blood supply and blood and oxygen is what feeds that area with, with nutrients. Okay, so that's what's essential for the health of it. So if you think about even explaining that to a patient that way, that you know that your your lower back may not be damaged, it may be unhealthy. And how do we get tissue healthier? It's no different to um, diet and exercise. We get things moving. We we put better nutrients into that into that area. So if we think of it explaining it like that, that it will respond really well to movement. Massage can be a great one in the short term to reduce some pain, but we need to get that healthier um, long term. So when we apply a pressure or a needle to that area, well, what we're doing is we're actually stimulating local capillary dilation. So we're getting more blood flow, more nutrients into that area, which can then change the um, I guess if we've got uh, an acidic environment, we add more blood flow into the area, it dilutes it. So now it's less acidic, which means then those nociceptors are no longer sending these danger messages back to the central nervous system. So we get a change in processing, change in output that can relax. Um, so what we do with our, our hands can be certainly one effect. But even the, the benefits that we have on the central nervous system can be massive. You know, as I said before, with um, increasing stress hormones that can make it easier for those um, pain signals to, to be sent, um, you know, lowering that parasympathetic tone to put them in more of that, that um, sympathetic environment um, we can we can really start to relax that person and and create some really good changes um, to to stress. And if we apply that those sort of ideas into clinical practice, it's really interesting and it's kind of a little disheartening probably for those who are like like us like us who are very much invested in manual therapy and you know we're huge advocates for it. You probably you know struggle to find two people that are bigger advocates for manual therapy. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to these mechanisms at play, it almost doesn't matter what we do to that tissue, as providing we apply uh, an appropriate um, non-noxious stimulus to the tissue, a lot of those processes will be, will be triggered. You know, you could apply a needle, you could apply basic ischemic compression, you could apply a heat pack, you can just rest your hand on their back and, and, and uh, you know, apply gentle pressure and You'll still get some so you'll still get some vasodilation. You'll still get some releasing of those in, uh, endogenous opioids. There's still be these changes in chemical processes, and a a, um, a a reduction in pain as a result of that happening at the spinal cord. And you know, it's that's why I say it's sort of disheartening. Yes, certain manual therapy techniques will probably produce more direct effects faster, but I think a lot of the time we get we get lost in the specificity of it all. We don't have to be as specific. I remember learning trigger points years ago and we were taught you had to hold the trigger point for a certain amount of time. Why? You know, that there's no science to support that as a concept. 
far better we hold it until the symptoms change, you know, that the patient re reports some changes that are appropriate and, uh, and that feel beneficial to that person. Because if they feel like they're receiving benefits, then that also kicks off, um, you know, emotional changes in that person's state, which then supports some of that pain modulation. So there's, you know, it's probably not as complicated as we make it out to be in a lot of cases. That's right. And it's just creating that window. You know, what we do in our, our treatment setting creates a window. And it, like you said, it could be a range of techniques you choose. Um, whatever it is and whatever works for that patient, because what works for one might not work for another. That's why we do have to have a, a tool bag of different techniques, but also what we do, what we say, um, how we can build trust and rapport, all really influence in, into that, um, that therapeutic relationship and the outcomes. But whatever it is, is to get them to a point where there's a window where they can then remove or, or modify those lifestyle, social, psychological factors you know, whatever else may be contributing to to why they have that pain or why they have that trigger point. Mm, exactly. So sum it up now. If we're talking about trigger points, the key takeaways from this discussion would be trigger points, they're not an isolated um, local phenomena in tissue. They, they are perceived that way. They feel that way to the patient. And we can palpate something that feels like a little nodule in the tissue and that exists because... You know, um, people have taken uh, biopsies of trigger points and they've found that there's a different chemical makeup in that tissue versus the tissue that's even a few millimetres adjacent to it. So the trigger point does exist. We can measure it in that way. Um, but it's not isolated in that it does not, that it doesn't, um, it, it's not that it's not connected to the rest of the body. Our nervous system um, and our, you know, there's neurological, there's chemical processes that take place for it to occur. And then there's neurological and chemical processes that are triggered as a result of it as well. Yeah, definitely. And even, you know, looking at a trigger point in the periphery, what segment at the spine is that coming from? So let's say if it's biceps, you know, have a look at C6. If it's a persistent trigger point, well, it's creating more noxious input to C6. Is there changes at, at C6 in, that need to be addressed as well? Um, so, yeah, really looking peripherally and, and centrally um, and encompassing the whole um, sort of pain neuro matrix, um, not just purely that physical presentation. We did say it was a big topic, didn't we? Massive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's good. We'll leave it there. Thanks for that. Cheers. Cheers.